Mother Earth is psychedelic. Her body is covered with psychoactive, sacred medicine. Can psychedelics help us become more conscious and loving parents, partners, lovers, and leaders? Welcome to the Psychedelic Mom Podcast. I'm your host, Michaela Carlin, the Psychedelic Mom, a mother and entrepreneur partnering with Mother Earth's sacred plant medicines to heal, awaken, and learn to live in alignment to my truth. Psychedelic literally means soul revealing. What reveals the soul to oneself is psychedelic. I invite you to join me in deep conversations with leaders, healers, seekers, and other parents. I will share my journey, the wisdom, practices, medicines, and mistakes that have changed my life, and personal stories of others on this wild path. We are the medicine needed to birth the more beautiful world we know is possible. Welcome to the Psychedelic Mom Podcast. I am back with another conversation with Dr. Gabrielle Pelice. Dr. Gabby is the head of provider relations, I'll do your intro, at Third Wave, which is a research-based psychedelic education and community platform. And last time I talked, I know you were involved in helping build the community. And you have your doctorate work in transformative studies from the California Institute of Integral Studies. And right now, I just found out after I said, who wrote your book? Can you write my memoir that you're doing like writing workshops, which is amazing. And then you traveled to so many different countries, as in the book, it talks about to almost find pieces of yourself. And we're hearing now that she is going to have a follow-up book because the book doesn't reach to this stage of her life. So I wanted to invite Dr. Gabby back because there's so many elements of this book that I feel like the audience would resonate with and so many aspects of within each of us, that deep seeking for wholeness, regardless of what our childhoods are like. And you went on such a deep journey, one that started possibly in the moment that you had your mother's funeral in that process. So let's just start there for a second, because you were how old when your mom passed away? 21. And you experienced kind of your first mystical experience. Yeah, I didn't know what the hell was happening. (laughs) I was like, I was, yeah, caught off guard for sure. I had grown up in the Catholic church and, you know, everything's very linear there. You know, there's like good and bad and all the rules and commandments and God is something kind of invisible and, you know, heaven's a place you go when you die. And the kind of Catholic church I grew up in, it wasn't, there was no mysticism. There was just discipline. And then... When my mom passed, I immediately had this spiritual connection with her, could communicate with her, could sense her, and it just like blew open my paradigm and just kind of shattered all the rules and laws and dogma and stuff that I had been living up until that moment, and I just didn't know what to do with it. It took me about five years to integrate that experience and understand that there are different lineages and religions and and practices where connecting with your ancestors is a very normal part of life. It's like normal to to pray to them, to communicate with them, to have relationships with them in the non-physical form. And 
once I sort of gathered all that information and learned all those different tools, I could normalize it. I could kind of relax into it. But before that, I was like, oh my God, oh my God. All I knew was the Western medical model. My father was a psychiatrist, neurologist, and all I knew is like, these kinds of experiences mean that you're crazy. These kinds of experiences are psychotic or something, you know, especially since I was sober. I wasn't on drugs when I saw it. I was completely sober having this very transcendental experience. So it took a while to understand what was happening. And now it's very comfortable. And at that time, you were 21. And it seemed like you had a lot of anger maybe toward your mom at that stage. You talk about her being in the hospital and buying her the sneakers. Can you describe where you were at that time when she got sick, where you were developmentally, and also leading up to it, what had happened between your parents? There was a lot of abuse in your childhood from your father. I grew up in a home with a lot of domestic violence, mental illness, addiction, so everybody was beating everybody up and screaming and yelling and we were moving out and moving back in and my dad went in and out of rehab a few times and it was just complete and total chaos violence I never knew from one day to the next what was going to happen and I was really really angry I was super pissed off I was pissed at my parents I was pissed at the world I felt like really like a sense of injustice from the time I was like three or four years old and I used to call the police and the police used to come and nothing would happen. And I would, it just didn't feel like anyone was intervening, supporting, protecting me. I had no protection and I couldn't protect myself. And I was really angry about it. And that permeated my relationship with my parents for the time they were alive. Like my mom was alive until my twenties. My dad passed about 10 years ago and that anger permeated it because I just, I couldn't accept it. I couldn't accept the situation and my mom and I had a very contentious relationship. My dad and I were always in conflict and power struggle about things. And I tried to be the bigger person, be compassionate and kind and all those things. And they're good in theory, but they can be really, really challenging in practice. So my mom and I weren't on great terms when she passed. We ironically, <laughs> found a lot of healing and harmony in our relationship once she passed. Once she passed and she wasn't stuck in the chaos and the conflict and the criticism and all that stuff, we were able to have a very harmonious relationship. And I felt all the love and protection and support from her that I had craved when she was in physical form, I felt that when she was in non-physical form. Looking back now, you know, your father was a psychiatrist. Is it surprising to you that he was a psychiatrist and had this background in mental health and supporting other people and yet really hadn't done his own work and was an abusive man? And did he ever get to a place where he ended up doing his own work? As far as I understand, traditional medical practitioners, physicians, even dentists and, and things, they have really high rates of addiction and even suicide. I think there's just a stress and um, a pressure in being in that profession. And 
I also think the climate and the culture around this topic was very different in the mid-70s when my dad was in medical school. There was a stigma because trauma had been passed down to him and he had had a lot of trauma and there weren't podcasts or conversations like there are now available at that time. And so I think it was a generational thing. I think he had acquired trauma and was passing it down to us. And then I think combined with the practice of being a physician, I think that compounded it for him. And he didn't have access to the tools and the information and the things that I have access to. So he did some healing work. He did go into recovery and get sober on his third marriage. He was married three times. But I would spend time with him once or twice a year, and a lot of the behaviors were still the same, even though he was sober. So I feel really blessed and lucky that I have been able to find some serenity and mental health that I think was not available to my parents. Like I, I think I'm just really privileged and really lucky that I've been able to do all the therapies and all the workshops and all the retreats and all the everything to reduce those effects of the PTSD and to break some of those generational patterns and to find a sense of wholeness. I think they just didn't have access to it and, and unfortunately they weren't really able to get there in, in their lifetime. We are lucky that these dialogues are out there and people can be open and people are writing books like this. And when we talk about generational trauma and what you experienced in your parents' relationship, because that was your now relational model, your father is your relational model for a man, how did that affect you in the men that you then chose in your life? And was there a final point where you're like really aware that the relationships that you were in, in and some of the patterns that you were in your life were based on like your childhood? Yeah, relationships were a real blind spot for me. I would be attracted to people and I would be in it for a year or two before I would be like, what am I doing? Like it was, it was very automatic pilot. I would end up with people who were really weak and needed a lot of support and I could give and I would get codependent and then I would get resentful or the last relationship that I had, he was much more like my dad in terms of narcissism and being disrespectful and stuff. And and I would compensate by trying harder to like fix everything and make everything better. Like I would get in these very weird situations that from the outside, I would have friends say to me, you're so amazing. How are you spending time with this guy? Like, you're beautiful. You're intelligent. You're educated. How are you with this guy? And like, so from the outside, it looked really obvious that I was making bad decisions, but it was a blind spot for me. I, like, I didn't understand. I do understand now because I'm single now, but dating now in my kind of dating life, I'm able to notice really quickly, like, oh, I see this habit in this guy. I see myself engaging in it. And I have an awareness of like, oh, I don't think I want to make that choice. I think I want to make this choice. And there's like a liberation in that and like a freedom, but you don't have access to that until you have access to that. Right. It's like, right. You end up just on this automatic pilot until you have that 
awareness and then you're like oh I don't have to do this right just like I don't have to reach for the cupcake and eat the cupcake or I don't have to have the glass of wine at the end of the day or whatever it is that is your habit until you're like oh this is what I'm doing I'm gonna make a different choice then you don't have that freedom and and I do feel that I have it now and I I it just wasn't available to me until I did all of the therapeutic work that I did it just wasn't available what are some of those red flags that you see that you're like, oh, you know, you mentioned like narcissism, but for someone who doesn't have that awareness yet, what are some of the things you could point someone to and say that could be narcissism or the guy did this and I was like, okay, I'm not going to pursue this relationship. Do you have any, any of those? Yes. It's how I feel is the flag green or red. So because I, my dad had made me feel bad for my whole life, when a guy made me feel bad, that wasn't a red flag. That was like, oh, guys make you feel bad. Now, <laughs> having kind of done all the work, if I'm interacting with a guy and he does anything, whether it's like avoiding me or like coming on too hard, not respecting my boundary, like whatever it is, if I feel bad, I'm like, oh, like, I feel bad. So what's going on that's making me feel bad? A boundary is being crossed. I can communicate to that person, this is my boundary and see what happens. Or I need you to be more consistent with me and see what happens. And then come back again to me when he responds, oh, how do I feel about how he responds? If it feels good. He was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I will respect your boundary. Oh, now I feel good. So my comfort has become my compass and I didn't have that before. Interesting. Because I just didn't expect to feel good because I had never felt good <laughs> interacting with men. I had felt like... It was just familiar. Yes. Which is weird because, you know, some people, they just, who had a loving parent and had a healthy, safe relationship, they have that expectation that in any interactions that they have with men or romantic partners, that they feel empowered, they feel healthy, they feel comfortable. It's just, it's the norm for them. And it, it just wasn't the norm for me. Also, you went into modeling at some point. And I'm curious what that made you feel like. Because again, that's like, seems to be almost a devouring industry. How old were you when you went into the modeling industry? And what were the like pros and what were the cons of that time of your life being in that field? Yeah, I started when I was eight. I was enrolled into it. So my mom took me to beauty pageants and doing little print local things for like the newspaper, the local department store, little fashion shows and things like that, which sort of culminated in the modeling contract when I was 17. So my mom had put a before I was even of age, I had been in it for about 10 years. And then I started professionally doing it as a career. And the same sort of thing happened with modeling that happened with relationships, which was I kept being like, this doesn't feel good. <laughs> I had been in it for 10 years crying to my mom, like the curlers are too tight and the makeup burns my eyes. And she kept being like, you're fine, you're fine. And then at some point I was like, this doesn't feel good. <laughs> like, I don't understand what's happening. You know, like I would go into the agency and they would measure me all the time and tell me I was so fat and I needed to lose weight. And I was even smaller than I am now. Even now at my weight that I'm at now, I was about 
I think almost 20 pounds skinnier than I am now. I'm pretty skinny. (laughs) And I just felt degraded and I felt uncomfortable. And at some point I was just like, this feels bad. And I started going to a therapist who started talking to me and I would tell her like, I can't eat. I haven't eaten in a couple days. I'm too fat, blah, blah, blah. And she would be like, this is sick. This is not good. You can do things differently. You can make different choices. Again, just someone's giving me permission to do things differently and giving me the option to make a different choice. Sometimes you don't know the choices that are available to you. Sometimes you don't even know. And sometimes you maintain commitments to things and loyalties to things that were assigned to you in some way until you find your agency, you find your personal power. And as women, we're so discouraged for so long to have that agency and that personal power. It's like, give it to your work, give it to your husband, give it to your kids, give it to your family, get like whatever. There's such a demand on our personal energy and personal power that sometimes it takes a little bit longer to get there, I think. Just even bringing that up, when you saw your mother and father divorce, once your mother didn't have that man in her life and wasn't a wife, what did her life look like after? What did society do in like for your mother? Did she have a thriving life after? What did she experience after divorce? I would never apply the word thriving to anyone in my family. I don't, thriving was just not part of our family dynamic in any way. My mom was more independent. She seemed more content. She dated. I resisted a lot of her dating because there would be like a lot of guys coming in and out and I'd be like, what's happening? Like I was in middle school or whatever and that was uncomfortable. She found contentment. She stayed in our childhood home. She did some renovations so she could rent out parts of the house. She had close friends. She spent a lot of time with friends. I wanted more for her. I knew that she secretly had desires of her own profession or her own career, which she never achieved. I wanted a partner for her that was amazing and loving and she never remarried or found another partner. So I wanted things for her. But it would be so fun and interesting right now at the age that I'm at, I'm in my 40s, and she was in her 40s at that time, to be able to talk to her. Because peer to peer, I have women friends now that are in their 40s. That conversation and that insight that you have with your female friends now, if I could have that with her, I would probably understand her very differently because I would be seeing her through the eyes of a peer and not the eyes of a middle schooler. But at the time, yeah, I was just still really angry and confused. Well, it seems like that therapist that you just mentioned, when you were in the modeling industry, even in the modeling industry, there was a woman measuring your legs, measuring your waist, telling you you were 15 pounds overweight. And then the other women in the field were telling you, just eat a head of lettuce. It's 15 calories. And it seemed like that one relationship with that first therapist might have been like a turning point for you. In some way, she really was a mentor and suggested you go to school. When you look back, was that a real pivotal point in your life? Yeah, that's why I say how privileged I am. I, uh, Her name was Dr. Kelly, and I, I worked with her for four years. I worked with her 
for I think I was like 18, 19, 20, 21 or something in there, like 19, 20, 21, 22 ish, that time in my life. And I would say that she was so much more than a mentor. Like she just shaped the rest of my life. She she filled in all the missing pieces that I hadn't got from my parents in terms of emotional intelligence and life skills and communication skills and clarity, self-reflection, self-insight. I can't even put into words what I learned from her during that time. And that's why I'm so blessed and that's why I'm so lucky because that's a really rare thing to have and to be able to afford. It was so powerful and so transformative. So lucky to have that and to have this woman see within you that you could go to higher education and suggested you maybe become a therapist. And that led down this path that you're on and have been on and continue to be on. And one of the things I said to you when we got on is, you know, when I first met you, I didn't know that you had become like a massage therapist and healer and someone who worked with their hands and healing. And I'm fascinated by that and how it started at like this first college friend inviting you to come because there was a psychic there and being like, huh, psychic. And, but what I loved is you kept listening regardless of this historical growing up Catholic with a father in the Western model of medicine, that there was something pulling you much more toward a holistic type of healing. Can you talk about that a little bit, what it was like to get trained to use your hands to heal and what kind of experience you yourself have to be in and what do you need to be tapped into to even do that kind of work? I'm such an unlikely healer. <laughs> it's so unlikely given, given my upbringing, given my immersion in Western medicine and the Catholic religion and the trauma and everything. I'm such an unlikely person to turn out as this holistic healer, I think. So my only interpretation is there must have been something much larger at play. There must have been some sort of divine purpose, some sort of karma. There must have been something larger at play that took me to Tibet and took me to ashrams and put me on this other path. It must have been kismet in some way. I know that the first time that I put hands on somebody and I started to explore massage therapy, it was just felt like so many things clicking into place inside of me. I felt at home, I felt at ease. I could feel what was happening inside the body on different levels, like physically, mentally, emotionally. I could feel what was happening. I could communicate that to the person. And similarly to the transpersonal experience I had with my mom, the massage was the same kind of thing where I had no context. Like, what is the context for me touching you and telling you that you're pregnant? When you haven't told me that you're pregnant and you don't know that you're pregnant, what is the context for that? <laughs> like, which happened, those things happened. And so I had to, again, take about another five years to integrate the fact that we have sensory awareness that is mysterious that we can know things about people, about the universe that 
are outside the boundaries of what science tells us is possible and that I have those gifts. I am empathic. I can know things about you that you didn't tell me. I can know things. My mom has come to me a few times and told me about things that were going to happen. Like most recently, she told me that her brother was going to pass away. And then I called my aunt and I said, Bill's going to pass away. And then Bill passed away. And he wasn't sick. It was not something that anybody knew was going to happen. But so I have access to some information that is a little bit woo-woo. And that's what happened when I started that massage experience. I started studying energy medicine and Reiki and massage therapy and all these modalities of touch and I found that it was a portal for information and as I accessed healing energies for others it was also bringing me more into alignment it was moving through my body and and strengthening me and empowering me and making me feel more connected and more whole so I think you get as much as you give when you're a healer I think you expand your capacity in so many ways by practicing as a healer. Again, feel very lucky. Yeah, I love that part in the book where there's this acknowledgement and question of like, as the healer and you're working on somebody at times, who's gaining, who's giving, the giving and receiving almost goes both ways. And you know, at times I've had clients who are grieving something and I feel that both ways where I'm like, huh, are they doing some grieving for me too on this area that I have the same wound? This happens a lot to me. This really awful, really non-attractive burping happens the next day for like an entire day. I'm like purging in this purgative burp of energy. But sometimes I notice it's very interesting that the different wounds that I have, clients come and, and, and also you say in the book, you can only go as deep as you've gone yourself. So I think there's that piece too, that it's so important to do your own, my own grieving work, which I've done, but it is interesting because each time there's this mystery, it's a mystery really. And that's part of the motivation to keep learning and healing is because you do have people present with things and you, you realize you've hit a limit, like, oh, I can't quite help this person the way that I want to or the way that I need to. And then that's part of the motivation to keep growing and expanding and learning is so that you can serve more because you feel that feedback loop. You feel how much you get in the practice of it and how much more you can give as you continue to heal your own stuff. So it's a very nice profession, calling, path. Yeah, it's beautiful. Your book ends with you at the Meadows in... (laughs) Arizona. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like and what it was like where you were in your journey once you got there and what that taught you? Yeah, my friend Michelle suggested that I go there and she said it might kill you, but (laughs) like if it doesn't, it's going to be very healing. And I was like, what? Hence the title of the book. Exactly. She's like, it's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. And I was like, yeah, whatever. Like, I've been to Tibet and I've done all the things. Like, how hard could it be? And now I've done ayahuasca and psilocybin and all these things. It was by far the most challenging because of what I mentioned earlier, which is I had blind spots and blind spots are blind spots, but they're also things that you're avoiding because you're always getting hints. 
right? You're always getting indications. You're always getting a sense of like something's not quite right, but like you just keep spraying Febreze and hoping that you don't smell it, right? Like, <laughs> Well, it's like that compass that you said, you know, you don't feel good, but you keep that relationship going or you know, this isn't working and you're so uncomfortable, but you're like, yeah, I love that Febreze, you know, it doesn't smell too bad. We'll just keep on going. Yeah. And this was basically locked down in a room for five days with the most talented therapist I've ever met in my life who just opened everything up and took it all out and was like, here, this is your life. And I was just like, ah. <laughs> and there was five other women doing it with me and she took out all their stuff and we all looked at each other's stuff. And I think that was one of the elements about it that was so transformative was that was the first step to publishing the book, right? It was, I had written multiple drafts of the book up until that point, but it was the part about other people witnessing it, that intimacy of being seen that I was not able to cross over. And it was only in completing that workshop, it was called a survivor's workshop where you explore all the trauma from your childhood. It was only in and revealing all of those things, being seen and feeling the relief of that, that I was able to put the manuscript into the world. And it's definitely the most powerful therapeutic thing I've ever done. There's a couple of things you're talking about is number one, when there is trauma, it gets turned on the self as a child. So there's this desire to not expose oneself and you had this deep desire not to expose yourself, even in like your original therapy or different places in your life where you were talking about how comfortable you were, even with a professor. You couldn't take the exam, but you couldn't really say what, how bad it was. And it is so interesting because in my opinion, the earth medicine work and ayahuasca and the best aspects of it, I think as far as healing goes, is getting into the shadow work is kind of like bringing you to those places and opening it up. And sometimes people can't get there without it. But if you have, like you just talked about these incredibly trained therapists, I always think it's like fascinating to see someone's current life and then have them start to tell little, little things about their childhood and see the direct ties. Like it's always the out picturing of the child. And in particular, when we don't have those awarenesses and we're not conscious yet, like you said, even when it came to the relationships, there was unconscious patterns playing out until there was awareness. It's so fascinating. And I know that there's same with me now, there's still things that I'm not fully aware of that are playing out in my life now. But it's so interesting how therapists have that ability and we have that ability to see so much easier to see it for somebody else too. Like, oh, that's the very child part playing out doing this. That's the part that never felt seen that needs this. And so what were some of those parts for you that were the hardest to really go into? I was in denial that my childhood was not that bad. It was in a locked box in some catacomb in my psyche. And I was like, yeah. The first thing you had to do in that workshop was inventory the trauma and you had to write down the category and the thing that happened it was 
excruciating to even just chronicle like without even speaking it out loud without even just to chronicle the things because like anything once you start to make the list you can't pretend anymore you have a list and the list just kept going and going and going and going and going and I was like oh (laughs) this is this is not good and so the confrontation the confrontation of reality the sobriety of the reality and facing that and then there's other practices that they do where they bring in the parent and you role play with the parent and you confront the parents about the things that they did and i mean each exercise was harder than the next because it was not something I ever practiced. And part of being a survivor of abuse is that you learn how to hide and deflect and perform and avoid, and you learn how to wiggle your way around these things for a lifetime. So to actually be in it, to have to feel the grief, the loss, of that, which was not something that I had ever processed. I never processed grief. I was an angry kid and an angry teenager, but I never went to grief. Grief was completely off limits for me. When I left that workshop, I cried for 200 days. I cried for 200 days when I left the workshop. Like crying became a daily purge it was a just i could not stop crying and it was 40 years of grief that i refused to let myself feel until that time and just to give a disclaimer i had built up a lot of self-care practices that i needed in the integration so i knew once i left okay these are all the things you're going to need to do right i knew that I had to be getting outside and getting fresh air. I was going to get some acupuncture. I was talking about my feelings. I was I had built up a toolbox to manage the larger immersion experience, which is something that I think is significant. You have to have tools for integration once you do an immersion. And that immersion can be meadows, that immersion can be ayahuasca, like that immersion can look like a lot of different things. But then you need tools to do that renovation at the end and that integration at the end. And and that's where I really had to kind of use all that support to recover. Your book talks about the many modalities. When you do finally get to the energetics and the emotions and the sensations of all that was suppressed of that child, you need those integrative practices did you have ones that you felt were the most supportive to you? Well, that's when I found the plants. Because up until that point, I had really valued breathwork, yoga, meditation, massage, acupuncture, herbalism to a certain extent, all the holistic things. I used them daily. I didn't really do Western medicine unless it was a very acute situation. There was something about the total deconstruction that happened during the Meadows experience. I needed the plants as an ally to put myself back together, which is what the second book is about. 
I needed the plants to teach me how to regenerate. I needed them. I needed them. I had to be in relationship with them, walking with them, talking to them, putting my hands in the soil, ingesting them, meditating with them. I needed them as an ally at this time in my life for that regenerative process. Nothing else was really helping. Some of it would sort of ease the anxiety or help me find that balance, but the plants became my teacher, my mentor, my support system, my medicine. And that's really what the second manuscript is about, is about how the plants put me back together. And do you have a title for this book yet? Often while I'm writing, the title keeps shifting and changing, but the working title right now is The Medicine We've Been Waiting For. And it's a lot about eco-consciousness and, and how the plants help to bring us back into right relationship and reciprocity and how it has so much to offer in terms of healing and medicine. And I really think that for humanity in general, we need to activate that that consciousness if we're going to write a new story for humanity and, and have that that collective healing because a lot of us are doing this work one-on-one but collective we all we all really need to move in a different direction what do you think in this journey that you've been on I know there was that question in the book I think it was would I ever be whole and then you picked up a book at a bookstore and it was a zen book and the first thing it says is you are perfect whole and complete as you are and so between that question of will I ever be whole to this deep knowing that it's all perfect as it is and you are, where do you think the plants and this whole journey has taken you in that question and that first paragraph of that book or first line of the book, what do you feel inside now and how do you hold both of those things? Yeah, it's funny because when I would see phrases like that in my 20s, I would be so irritated. <laughs> I would find them so irritating. I'd be like, perfect, meh. Like, what are you talking about? Like, this is a shit show. Everything is a shit show. What do you look at the world? Right. And then I kind of graduated into a little bit of a, like a spiritual bypass, Abraham Hicks, like the, everything's working out for me. Everything's working out for me. And, and you can get really blissful. I can just call this in. Yeah, yeah. You can get so blissful on the mat where you tap into a sense of wholeness, but it's not embodied, right? It's not like coming from your gut. It's coming from like the dopamine hit of the meditation or whatever. And I really genuinely, firmly believe that ingesting the mushrooms and the herbs and just getting dirty every day. I was doing manual labor on farms. I was building houses. I was sitting in ceremonies. I really do believe that it became part of each cell of my body, or maybe that that sense of wholeness and well-being was already there, but I was like activating it and like turning it on and tapping it in. And I really do feel like it's on the inside now. It's not something that I'm like reaching for or meditating on, or it really feels like it's inside so much so that, whereas like the inner critic voice was so dominating prior to my relationship with plants that I would just succumb to the inner voice and be like, yeah, I'm a loser. I know life is terrible. Yeah. Now there's such a wholeness inside of such a resilience that when I get that inner critic starts to 
whatever. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, are you talking to me? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, whose voice is this? What are you talking about? And that's coming from just like literally like a place of lightness and of well-being. And I, I don't even have to rage against the inner critic. It's not even a thing. It's so funny because when you start to realize like your thoughts and the thoughts about yourself, you don't have to take as anything other than like thoughts. And so I had the similar experience. I was driving home from my colleague's house and out of nowhere, some like negative thinking came and I named it like I gave it another name. I was like, oh, wow. I pretended it was my colleague. I was like, wow. Steph is thinking a lot of negative thoughts right now. And I like disapplied it to like, who are you talking to? Cause that's not me. I don't know who you're talking about. And it's interesting. And I don't mean that in a bypass way either, because I think you do get a deeper sense of you knowing, and you know, when the critic is just the critic, it's that maybe the stuff from childhood or a wound that plays out versus that deeper knowing in yourself that if that voice came on and said, oh, maybe you want to look at this, it comes in a very different way. But I love that when you're talking about that knowing inside that is very different than from it coming outside in the bypass way of some of the affirmations and all is well and whole. And it's so funny because I have the same kind of experience. I remember, is it, oh, Louise Hay's book, she had that meditation that said, I am whole and complete as I am. Everything is perfect. And so like about 20 years ago, I would just recite it. And there was a part of me that believed it. And a part of me that was like, I'll just say it because I can make this come true. And I think as you go a little bit deeper on the path and possibly some deeper inner healing is like, you can hold both. You can hold the parts of yourself that are still yet to be fully integrated into the wholeness, but with pure love, not criticism, and then honor the parts of yourself that are fully whole, knowing that, yeah, it is all, it is all whole. It's interesting, you know, it's an interesting process. And I don't know where I'll be a year from now in that thought. I know that's what's so interesting is that we're a moving target, right? Like our identity is a moving target. It's like we're in the process of shifting and changing and evolving and expanding and learning constantly. We're not like a fixed thing. We tend to think of everything as so fixed and it's not. Everything is always in motion. We're in motion. Everything is in motion. So do you still work with clients now? Yeah, I've just opened up my practice again. I had paused my practice for a long time and I spent a few years reflecting on what I wanted my practice to be because initially it was a lot of body work and, and energy work type stuff. And then I, I shifted. I was doing business consulting for about a decade because I was a university professor. And as women were coming through my trainings and trying to carve a career path, they were like, I don't know what to do. So I was mentoring and teaching business related skills for a long time and then I got into the plants and the psychedelics and I opened up my practice again recently for coaching around writing leading writing retreats working with people to draw on these different resources like microdosing and and journaling and and things as part of their toolbox for transformation. And so 
I've started teaching some classes around this. I have something I call writing as medicine. And what I didn't realize was how much the book was part of my healing process, which is what I'm, I'm writing about now, and how powerful writing is as a tool. And I think that exists within the larger umbrella of art in general. I think if you can't tell someone what's going on, if you can paint a painting or you can make a song or you could write it down, I think do what you can do. Like find creative expression, find a way to tell your story. I think that there's an added layer of healing and growth when you're able to express that to someone else and say, this is what this means. This is what happened to me. This is how I'm healing. I think that allows the light to come in and that allows all of the darkness to dissipate and helping people to do that feels really valuable to me. And, and so that's what I'm focused on now, like groups and one-on-one -on -one around writing and storytelling and expression and helping them on their journey. On the medicine, how would you, for someone who's, oh, that sounds really interesting, huh, microdosing, creativity, someone who's kind of new, what would you say that earth medicines can do for your creativity? Or what's happening when you use a microdose or a bigger dose of medicine for your creative journey? I just gave a really interesting talk about this for Creative Mornings. I don't know if you know that group, but they have local chapters everywhere. And I spoke at the chapter in Palm Beach. They have a morning once a month, like on Friday, where a speaker talks and they asked me to speak about psychedelics. And the topic was reverie. Reverie meaning that experience of daydreaming and imagining and things like that. And in my talk, I explained about the default mode network of the brain and that when this default mode network gets too hyperactive, we're overthinking everything. And that's where a lot of that voice comes in where, why did I do that? I shouldn't have done that. I got to do things differently. It's like a lot of that inner narrative happens. And one of the things that we know that psychedelics do is that they interrupt that pattern. And for me, I used microdosing for healing, but I also used it to finish my manuscript. So I needed to write without too much overthinking. I needed to activate the creativity. I needed to feel that ally and the support. And the plants hit all three of those targets for me. They were increasing my well-being. They were calming my mind. They were supporting my creativity. They were just like really facilitating my process as a writer and I think that they offer a lot for people who are working there's even moms a lot of really popular mom groups like you know you have the psychedelic mom podcast there's moms on mushrooms you know like moms are also using this to manage their mental health while they're taking care of everyone else's needs as a mom that's amazing, right? And we know that psychedelics are less harmful than psychotropics. We know that they're non-addictive. You can't get addicted to psilocybin. We just, we know that they provide so much benefit and not everyone is gonna have access to a retreat. They're not gonna be able to leave their life for a couple of days to go on a retreat. A lot of people are gonna be intimidated by a macrodose experience and microdosing just 
makes it accessible and it comfortable if you want to try to explore this medicine as a tool for your own healing or creativity. So it's been infinitely valuable for me and I'm seeing the same results with other people as well. When we talked earlier about kind of the Western model of healing versus like earth medicines, and we were just talking about how quickly it changes. Were you at the Colorado conference in Denver? Yeah, psychedelic science. So where do you think we're headed now? We're getting more and more mainstream adoption. I think the pendulum is going to kind of swing back and forth. You know, we're seeing decriminalization on the West Coast and we're seeing all of Australia, New Zealand. You can use psilocybin MDMA for therapeutic use. Like we're seeing broad changes. We're seeing more mainstream education. Just before I was talking to you, I was going through that course from Berkeley that they put out online. It's like a free course and it's becoming accessible. It's in the media daily. And you saw at that conference, there's like 12,000 people at the conference. And the previous conference, he said there was like a few hundred people. <laughs> there's like 12,000 people. It's extraordinary. So I think it's going to continue to grow. But I think there's always going to be this ebb and flow. You know, we see this with other things that become popular. We need a lot more conversation around harm reduction. We need a lot more conversation about accessibility. There's just like things that we still need to explore. But in the meantime, I run the community at Third Wave and we opened up the doors like two months ago and there's already 1,600 people in there and there's hundreds of people joining you know, every week. It's just... And is that community of microdosers? Is it a community just within the psychedelic community? What is that community at Third Wave? Education, research? It's a free resource. It's a forum type community. It's online and it's free to anyone to join. You just have to follow the rules. The rules like is you can't come in there and spam people and bother people. You can come in and ask questions and answer questions. And I host a call every month called Community Connect, which is a Zoom call. You can come on the Zoom call and ask questions. There's different categories of forums. So there's categories of mushrooms and ketamine and and we share all of our resources. We produce a significant amount of content. We produce podcasts and blog posts and different sourcing guides and courses. And so we share all the, the stuff that we're producing. And it's just meant to be an extension of the brand, which is this safe and ethical use of psychedelics, a forum for education and community. And I'm in there daily for a couple hours just helping people out and answering questions and pointing people towards different resources. Yeah, I think I did the um, microdosing course through you guys at some point. Now, are you still in West Palm? I am. I bought a house. Whoa, <laughs> how is it? I know, I'm like, I'm like adulting, hashtag adulting. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Now, in your writing course, do you think that some of it is actually also healing? Do you think you're getting people who are not only interested in their writing, but are also part of the healing path and the journey of writing is part of that healing? Or maybe to write, they have to go deeper into something they haven't full, fully felt to then be able to express it in a way that might compel someone to read more? All of the above, for sure. The course that I'm teaching this Friday is at New Life. They're a brand that 
initially was a group of ketamine clinics and then that transitioned online during the pandemic where they became an at-home ketamine service and now they've transitioned to like a more holistic wellness brand and the founders brought in a bunch of coaches to teach different wellness modalities and I'm teaching the writing as medicine course within that community and that's exactly the idea the idea is once you have an experience and it could be from psychedelics or not psychedelics it could be an experience of loss or grief or divorce or whatever the territory and all the stuff that comes up can feel really unmanageable and there's something about writing that helps to settle and ground and organize your thinking so you can use it in that way you can also use it in a way to discover yourself to what am I actually feeling? I'm a big fan of the morning pages, which is from the, the artist's way. It's just a practice where you get up and you write free associating whatever's coming into your head. That's a great way to learn about yourself because sometimes you don't even know what's inside of there and it's only in the expression of it that you realize the stuff that's going on. So yes, 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 and yes. There's so many different ways to use it. There's so many different ways that it changes you and adds value. It's so interesting, you know, especially when you read someone's book, you can kind of see, obviously, the points that were transformative, like the therapist that you had that suggested the school. And you can see like the points where you were dating the star of the, what was it, Jesus Christ Superstar? Yeah, my college boyfriend. And it was like, we'll get married, we'll settle down, I'll get the job. And these points in life that could have gone this way or that way, you know, and I'm just really curious to what's next for you that you have this book and these new teaching classes. Is there more travel in your future? No, I'm grounding in. I'm, I'm rooting deep. You know, I, I got the house because I want to be embedded in the community and I'm working with some local clinics to do the coaching face-to-face with clients going through treatment and teaching these classes, working with people. I feel called to just be in one place right now. And I have this manuscript I'm gonna finish by the end of the year so that I can put that one out next year. I think that's really great that you're like, now it's rooting time and adulting time and this new phase of teaching. And you know, I love how it seems like your mother passed away and these women role models came into your life. And then you started studying women healers. I mean, even that first woman that you went to, there was a woman who was an older woman who was like a foot shorter than you with gray hair, who invited you in initially to kind of the healing journey. It seems like there have been these women healers on the path. And then your travels into the pagan priestess temples. And now here you are like teaching. Here you're in this role of being a teacher now to women who want to write or men who want to write. But I think that's really beautiful that you've kind of collected this wisdom, collected the pieces of yourself around the globe and are rooting down writing this next book. Can you give us some highlights of the book that's coming? It opens pretty much where we left off in all the ceiling is killing me. I'm in my Mustang <laughs> driving across Arizona like, ah, 
what is happening? And then we're just, we're on an adventure. It's, we go to Guatemala, we go to New Mexico, we go to Puerto Rico, we meet more healers and shamans and we have a lot of experiences of learning and the dedication of the book is is really to the plants and i want people to know how powerful they are and and how much that they have helped me and i have a vision of going into community with this next book and meeting other people who are having these experiences with plants and hearing their stories I love when my writing activates other people to write. That's such a satisfaction for me. Well, it is so powerful, too, to just hear. I mean, I love that invitation and also the invitation to invite other stories. Like, how have the plants changed our lives? What was a journey that you had that completely changed your life that if someone was listening today might be invited to take that journey themselves? Yeah, those are the stories that we need to be telling. I think that's what was so powerful about the Michael Pollan books when they came out. I think that's what really created this sort of avalanche of interest in some ways was that he was like, oh God, I took some mushrooms and my ego dissolved, (laughs) just so you know. And I think that's what creates this effect, this ripple effect of other people saying, well, if he can do it, I can do it. I want to explore this for myself. That's what I see in our communities, people coming in every day, like, I never did this. I want to do this. How do I do this? And for me, my teachers have been peyote and ayahuasca and psilocybin and even kitchen herbs. I've been consistently daily using everything from garlic and honey to chamomile and kava. And I learned today actually something really interesting. I mentioned I was doing the Berkeley course before we talked. The word drug, the etymology of the word drug, it comes from dried plant, drug. So when we think of drug, our first inclination is like prescription meds. And that's not where it comes from. The etymology of the word is dried plant. That's where the whole pharmacology of everything that we use comes from. It's it's the root of medicine. Plants are the medicine. So I'm going to be exploring a lot of that in, in my writing. Will you be sharing your experiences? Yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> We're going to go on some trips together. <laughs> if you enjoyed today's show and want to help build a more beautiful, conscious, and loving world, please share this content with friends, family, and colleagues. You can follow this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use, and I'd really appreciate you taking the time to write a review so that others can find these amazing conversations. And if you'd like to see a video version of the show, you can find me on YouTube. Feel free to reach out and connect with me at thepsychedelicmom.com or message me on Instagram at thepsychedelicmom. And remember, you are the medicine.